Uh, tonight we're going to be covering the uh, last remaining two teachings. So let's go ahead and put our hands together. Let's welcome up Pastor Benjamin Robinson. How's everybody doing tonight? Everybody feeling good? Very good. Very good. Jolly good. All right, let me get my... Uh... Yeah. All right. So we're bringing this thing in for a landing. And uh, typically I do encounter in four sessions. This time we collapsed it into three so as not to kill you. Uh, the last three times we've done it, we did four sessions in one day. What's that? Exactly. That's the feedback I kept getting. It was too much. And, uh, and what we'd do is we'd have a 9 a.m. session that would end at about 10.30, about an hour and a half teaching. And the purpose teaching, and, and every time I do the purpose teaching, people are all broken up and messed up and jacked up and snot and tears flowing. And, and, uh, um, and, uh, and then we, we go right into a small group for 15 minutes. And then a 15-minute break, and then the next teaching starts at 11. And then that ends at 12.30, 15-minute small group, 15-minute. And then 12.45 to 1.45 is lunch, 2 o'clock. And then we're done by 5 o'clock. So it's four sessions all in one day. And people are like, you can't do this to me. (laughs) Because, you know, this stuff takes time. I realize the Lord let me soak it in for 10 years before even allowing me to give it to the body of Christ. And so I can't expect people to get it in one day. So we're, we're, we're playing with some different options um, and uh, trying to reformat it in such a way that it's more accessible. Um, so we've been talking so much about uh, understanding the relational nature of your purpose and your identity. We, we love to go functional. We go functional first. And then we try to understand relationships according to our functions, which is completely the opposite because we're human beings, not human doings. But we don't know how to be human beings. We only know how to be human doings. We define our humanity through our doing instead of defining it through our being. And so we talked about our purpose uh, last night and And uh, we really only got to the first aspect of your purpose. Your purpose, of course, is to be with the Father and to receive His love. The second part of your purpose, if we had time to go into it, is to return that love to the Father. So Jesus says the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. So being loved by God and loving Him in return is your purpose. And really your identity, first and foremost, is that you're sons and daughters of God But there's other parts of your identity as well. Because once you discover that you're sons and daughters of God, you also discover that you're brothers and sisters with one another. And if you stop with just being, I'm just a son of God. If I stop there and I never look laterally and see my brotherhood and sisterhood with other believers in Christ, now I'm a separatist. It's just me and God. And I've just got this direct line with God. It's just me and Jesus. And I got this direct line. And that's one of the biggest problems. That's why there's such an individuality 
about Christianity in the Western world because it's just me and Jesus. But no, i got to look laterally and see that if I'm his son and you're his son, then we're brothers. And there's a kindredness about brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. That's why we can be a multi-ethnic gathering. I, you know, one of the things I, that uh, the spirit of slap comes on me in America because you got so many ethnic believers that are just that, ethnic believers. They're believers according to an ethnic expression of faith. And I hear people say, well, I can only, I can only worship with my people. And I hear people say things like, I feel most comfortable worshiping with my people. I just want to slap the mess out of people when they say that because I don't see anything. In, in, first of all, I don't see any place in Scripture where your worship expression is supposed to revolve around your comfort. So you say, well, I, I don't feel comfortable in a black church. Well, I, don't, I only feel comfortable around black people. I went to that Mexican church and I felt so out of place. You know what? If it's the same Holy Spirit that comes on the Mexicans, that comes on the whites, that comes on the blacks, that comes on the Koreans, that comes on the, the Chinese, and that comes on the, the Cantonese and the Pacific Islanders, then you should be able to worship in any of those places because there should be a sense of a kindredness of the Spirit. You know, the first uh, one, one of my first encounters in this way was back in 1995. I was in Israel for the first time. And, and I went to the Western Wall to worship. And as I'm worshiping at the Western Wall, there's a man next to me speaking a foreign language. But my spirit recognized his spirit. And his spirit recognized my spirit. And suddenly there was this fellowship in the spirit. And he and I, now I'm just 19 years old. I'm just there and I'm worshiping. And all of a sudden he and I are just, just inching closer to each other. And the, next, and the next thing I knew, we were just worshiping together in two different languages. But there was a connection that happened in the spirit. Why? Because the spirit that was on him was also on me. And we recognized one another's spirits. You ever just met somebody and your spirit recognized their spirit? The spirit in you bore witness with the spirit in them. And you just know. You know, I, I remember going to Vietnam for the first time. We did a, a conference with underground uh, churches. And they brought in leaders from all over the country. They only could bring in about 30 of them. It was very dangerous. Uh, what I love about Vietnam was that they think purely in terms of discipleship, not church membership. They don't have any comp concept of church membership. They, uh, the question they ask is, how many disciples do you have? And so the guy who was overseeing this whole network, he was still, yes, she have 1,000 disciples. He has 600 disciples. She has only two disciples, but she's just beginning. He has 12 disciples. He has 25 disciples. He has 4,000 4, disciples. And they just know how many, you know, you know I got 4,223 disciples. I mean, they know exactly how many disciples. So this 30 leaders, they represented tens of thousands of believers all across the country. And they journeyed, many of them, hours and days to get to this conference. Well, we were right across the street from the police station having an illegal meeting upstairs on the fourth floor of this building. I mean, it was, it was very illegal. It was against the law. And, and we had to close the shades and the drapes and the windows and the blinds and everything. And it was about 100, 101 degrees in that room. I mean, it was like, it was toasty. And uh, they don't have the kind of, uh, they don't have the kind of um, uh, 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 small capacity that we Westerners have. They want you to preach all day. They're like, no, three hours, then we take a one-hour break. And then you preach another three hours, and then we take a one-hour break. And then you preach, I mean, you're there all day. And so we did that for three days in this hot room, you know. 
And uh, I mean, the whole time they're weeping like it's the greatest revelation they've ever heard before in their lives. But what broke me was when we first started, the very first morning, we walk in and somebody grabbed a guitar and they started singing in Vietnamese. But they were singing as the deer pants for the water brooks. So my soul longs for you. And I felt such a connection with, I mean, it was like, my wife and I were standing, and we were just weeping. We were just broken. We were just bawling. Here are our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, and we have this kindred worship experience. Now watch this. Fast forward a couple of years later. That was in 2005. In 2008, I'm with the underground church in China. Now, and it, we're in Harbin. And up, up northeast, up just below Russia, it's butt cold up there. I mean, it's cold. It's freezing. I mean, I, they didn't warn me. They didn't tell me. They just said, meet me in Shanghai. Because it was so secret, he couldn't even tell me through email where I was going. So he said, meet me in Shanghai. So I dress for Shanghai. It's like 70 degrees. We get on a plane and fly up to Harbin. And I walk outside. Holy mother of God. The cold went right through my body and out the other side. <laughs> and so we're in this. I mean, he and I are walking down the street. And all of a sudden, he says, don't walk with me. He walks away. And so I'm, I'm alone. I'm like, what, what's going on? What's happening? Right? This, this is some stuff. You know, they, they were watching us. And so uh, we wake up early in the morning and we walk around this corner. We're walking through these buildings. And all of a sudden we go downstairs underground in the basement of this huge apartment complex. I mean, you could see the pipes and the floorboards and the ceiling. It was nothing but a concrete floor. And it sat about uh, 50, 60 people were there. And uh, the Spirit of God came so strong. I mean, it was such a marvelous time. It was just a powerful time. Each and every person there not only oversaw a network of house churches, they oversaw a whole city of house churches. Every person. They only brought the heads of cities. So there were about 60 cities represented in this room of house churches. And the Spirit of God came so strong. I mean, it was, it was incredible. But the most impactful moment for me was when they started to worship. But here was the thing about it. It's not only in the Chinese language, but they don't do our songs. They weren't singing, as the deer pants for the water brooks. So my son, there was nothing recognizable. You can't, and you know, they're clapping. But you know, we clap on either one and three if you're white. <laughs> or two and four if you're black. <laughs> or if you're Korean, all four. But there's a meter to it. They had this strange... I could not figure out when the next clap was coming. The meter was all off. And the melody, I couldn't, I couldn't catch the melody. It didn't make no sense to the Western mind. And the, the words, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't even make out a syllable. You, just, uh -huh. you know, I'm just like, I just can't, I can't get it. I don't know. Yeah. There was nothing in the natural to connect me to that worship experience at all. But you know what? I cried like a baby just like I did in Vietnam because the same Holy Spirit that moved on that which I could identify in one country was moving on that which I could not identify on the other country. But it wasn't the words or the music or the expression. It was the spirit behind it that I was connecting with. And so when we recognize that we are sons and daughters of God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we also recognize that we're brothers and sisters, and that's part of your identity. And then finally, we learn that we're also fathers and mothers in the body of Christ. And now all of a sudden, we begin to represent the fatherhood of God 
to his sons and daughters. And that's really intense. I was telling somebody earlier, I spent last year meditating on the story of the prodigal son. And in that story, you know, the two prominent figures are the younger son and the older son. And throughout the year, the spirit would highlight things in my life. And I'd begin to identify with the younger son. And then later on, I'd identify with the older son. And then later, I'd identify with the younger son. I'd come back and forth between the younger son and the older son. And, I, and the spirit of God was just putting his finger on things in my life, younger son qualities and older son qualities. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the year, the Lord spoke to me and said, it's time for you to stop identifying with the younger son or the older son and begin to identify with the father. That's who I've called you to be. And that's who your people need you to be. You need to be the father who embraces wayward sons without asking questions. Wow. There's purpose. Identity. We talked about identity this morning. Your identity also is is relational rather than functional. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. Who you are is not an action. Who you are is not a function. It's not an activity and it's not a performance. But we are so performance-oriented in our culture that we only find our sense of significance in what we do. But your identity is that from which you derive your sense of significance. And so you can tell where you're finding your identity by what gives you your sense of significance. If it's some function, if it's some performance from which you derive your sense of significance, then that's what you're identifying with. But if you can, de- if you can derive your sense of significance from your relationship with the Father, then it is your sonship in Him that is the source of your identity. Learning to feel significant just in being relational with God. The disciples, Jesus sends them out two by two and they come back marveling. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he says, don't marvel about that. Those are functions. Marvel that your names are written in the book of life, meaning find your sense of significance from the fact that I, through faith in me, you are sons of God and your names are written in his book. That's what you marvel about. That's where you find your sense of significance because every other function is temporary. You're not going to be healing no sick folk in heaven. But you'll still be sons of God and daughters of God there forever. That identity is where you should derive your sense of significance from. Amen. Okay, today, we, tonight, we're going to take it. Uh, we're going to take it to a close, and I may talk for a little bit long. So just prepare your heart for that. Okay. All right. Okay. Amen. But I'm going to try to honor the time and get us out by ten, so you can go to your small groups. Last night, I just went way too long. And I know that was, um, but, but, uh, but this is, this is establishing stuff. This is establishing stuff tonight. We're going to talk about your nature and your mission, your nature and your mission. First of all, there's your purpose. Second of all, there's your identity. Thirdly, there's your nature. And then finally, there's your mission. Your purpose is why you are. Your identity is who you are. Your nature is what you are. And your mission is what you're supposed to do with all of that. (laughs) Yes. Your purpose is why you are. Your identity is who you are. Your nature is what you are. If you get the what you are mixed up with the who you are, now you're in trouble. 
apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, deacon, brother, bishop, elder, all of those are functional identities that are a part of the what you are, not the who you are. Because if you identify with one of those functional identities and now you're trying to, let's say I try to embrace the apostolic as my identity. Now I'm going before God as an apostle. And I'm trying to be apostolic. You ever find yourself in the prayer closet preaching a sermon? You ever wonder who you're preaching it to? I mean, talk about preaching to the choir. (laughs) So your nature is what you are. When we're talking about your nature, we're talking about literally that which is natural to you. You can't discover what you are until you discover who you are. See, if you've got a warped perspective of who you are, it's going to form a warped perspective of what you are. And I hear believers say things all the time about their nature. Well, this is just who I am. This is just, you know... See, I talk to somebody in the church and say, you know what, you're you're too hard on people. you got to calm down. You you know, you're just blasting people and, and, you know, you're hurting people's feelings. Well, that's just who I am if they can't handle it. No, that's not who you are. That's what's wrong with you. you got to get past that to discover who you are. That's in the way of who you are. Can I just set something straight? Sin is not a part of your nature. For too long in the body of Christ, we've been defining humanity in terms of sin. To be human means to be a sinner. No! When God created Adam and Eve, He did not create two sinners. He created two beings in His image and likeness and they were holy and they were blameless. And that's what it meant to be human. Sin was the distortion of that. Sin makes you less human, not more human. But I hear people say all the time when you confront somebody with sin, well, pastor, I'm only human. Eh. You want to try again? How about poll the audience? Use the lifeline. You're not only human because if you were only human, you wouldn't be acting that way. You're acting pretty inhuman right now. You're acting like an animal, not a human. And so Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. The image and likeness of God and not just a physical image and likeness. It didn't mean that God fashioned his physical body to look like his because God didn't have a physical body. It meant that that which was natural to God was natural to Adam. So that Adam's nature mirrored God's nature. And that's the promise of redemption to us. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that by them you may participate in the divine nature. 
meaning that which is natural to God then becomes natural to you. Now here's the thing. When your nature is opposed to God's nature, but yet you're trying to minister, now you have to fight your own nature in order to perform the tasks of the ministry. And there's something fundamentally wrong with that picture. But when your nature has been conformed to God's nature, then when you enter into the task of ministry, that is your mission, it's all natural. Loving people is natural. Healing people is natural. Jesus, what did he say in Exodus? I am the Lord that heals you. Meaning to heal you, I don't have to do anything special. I just have to be myself. It's natural. It was very natural for Jesus to heal people. Just just flow. Yeah, just, you know, yeah. Yeah, stand up and walk right there. That's good. (laughs) Freedom flowed out of his very being. It was natural. We're trying to take a seminar to find five steps to doing it. But when it's natural, you don't need any steps. Six steps to forgiving, folks. Five steps to, 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 to having better relationships. We, we think that if I just go to a seminar and learn the five steps, all I'm doing is trying to make up for the deficit in my nature through learning some function or some activity. And the first thing God has to work on before he releases you fully into your ministry is he's got to work on your character. The primary aspect of your nature is your character And understand this, character is more than morality. Character, your character, is the unique way that you manifest your morality. That is, you have a a set of values. The person next to you might have the exact same set of values, but they're going to manifest that set of values differently than you do. Because you have a different character. But the one thing that stands in the way of the development of your character is religion. The question is, do you do what you do because it's part of your religion or because it's part of your character? Do you dance like a fool at the altar because that's just who you are? If so, then you don't only do it at church. If I came to your home, would I find you dancing like a fool? Or do you just do it when there's a crowd watching? If you only do it in front of the church, it's just religion. It's not your character. You just do it because that's what the church does. If you only pray at the church prayer meeting, that's just religion. If you only open your Bible when the pastor says, turn in your Bibles too. But when it becomes a part of your character, you do it not because it's right or because it's expected of you, but because your character demands it. Meaning that even if nobody else was around, you would do it. If there was no chance that anyone would discover that you didn't do it, you would still do it. 
You do it because you want to do it, not because it's been demanded that you do it, not because it's the rule, not because it's the law, not because of any social pressure, but because your character has embraced it and it has become a part of who you are. See, this is the thing. We got folks pursuing ministry, but their character has not been shaped around the ministry that they're pursuing. But yet I want the function. You know what I tell people when they come to me at the church and say, I want to preach. I say, when people start coming to me, telling me about what an impact you've had on their lives. Then I will validate that God-given ministry in this body by giving you the pulpit. You're telling me you don't have an impact on anybody's life. You're not ministering to anybody. You don't get any words from the Lord for anybody. You haven't encouraged anybody in the body. In fact, you're talking bad behind people's backs. You're not discipling anybody. You're not helping anybody grow in their walk with the Lord. But you want me to give you the pulpit. There's nothing natural about that. I want to see the natural flow of ministry out of your life. And then we'll talk about validating that. Listen, by the time I give people the pulpit at our church, there's been such a validation of their ministry in the house that it demands it. I got to give this person. There are so many people that this person is having an impact on. And it's not a feigned impact. They're not doing it to get something. It's just natural. If you hang out with this person, you're just going to get something from God. It's so natural that the body begins to yearn for this person's ministry. When you get put up to preach, it should make sense. People should go, yeah. People shouldn't go. So your character. When it becomes a part of your character, it becomes self-perpetuated. Is your spiritual life perpetuated by the church or is it perpetu- Is there an internal locus of control? Is there something on the inside of you probing you forward saying, get up and pray. Open your Bible. You know what drives me crazy is when believers go on vacation and they don't go to church. I don't know about you, but, but my value is I'm going to be with God's people on Sunday morning. I mean, I don't care where I am in the world. I don't care what's going on. I, I've bought flights early to make it to church somewhere. If I'm in Hawaii, we're going to find a church in Hawaii. My wife and I, were on our, you know, we're on our honeymoon, and we're looking for churches in Cancun that we could go to so that we could worship with God's people. We were in, you know, wherever we are in the world, we're going to find God's people and get with them. And guess what? If we don't find God's people, do you think we'll take the morning off and watch a movie? No. I look at my wife and say, you're God's people. And she looks at me and says, you're God's people. So God's people are going to worship on Sunday morning. Is that religious? No, it ain't religious because there's no expectation from any group of people demanding that we do it in order to conform to some societal norm. That's what religion is. Oh, you're just legalistic. No, it's my value. It's my character. 
That's what I see. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. The Lord's day is Sunday. That's what they called it. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Meaning John said, I woke up on this prison island. I looked around and didn't see any believers there. But he said, I don't care if there's no believers here. If I'm the only one, I'm still going to church. Why? Because it's the Lord's day and that's what I do. Your character is what you do when nobody is looking. Your character is proved not in the public place, but in the private place. What you do when no one is watching and when there's no chance of it ever being discovered, that's your character. Joseph's character was displayed when he ran from Potiphar's wife. Obviously, she wasn't going to tell nobody. Get herself killed? I mean, when your husband is the captain of the guard, you don't mess with your husband. Now, when we're talking about the development of your character, first of all, you've got to ask, how, how then do we develop character? I mean, how, how does God take things that are external to, the, to us and make them internal to us? You know how he does it? By allowing us to walk through trial and adversity. That is, he disciplines us. I mean, look at, a natu- look at the natural development and maturation of a child. How is Alethea gaining character? Because there's a lot of things that are right, a lot of values we're trying to give her, and there's only one way to give them to her, discipline. No, don't touch that. Stop that. Put that down. Don't slap people. Say you're sorry. Do you want a timeout? Oh, we give her timeouts now. It's the best thing in the world. You know, you sit her in the corner, and it's, it's so cute. It, it breaks my heart. I can't, I, can't, I can't do it for more than, like, a minute. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's my heart breaks. But, you know, I sat her in the corner at home the other day because, before I came because she slapped one of the young ladies from the church, and she slapped her pretty hard. <laughs> I said, that's it, time out. And I stood her in the corner, and she turned around and she looked at me and went, please, please. <laughs> I wanted to laugh and cry all at the same time, because this is my little girl begging me, you know, it just pulls my heartstrings. I just can't say no to her, but I got to keep her in that corner, and, you know, until she says sorry. Now, 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 now. Um, God develops your character through discipline. Look at your neighbor and say, discipline. He puts you in a place where you're going to be disciplined. Listen to this, Proverbs 10, 17. Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores, ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I'm going to read that again. (laughs) Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Do you love discipline? (laughs) Tell the truth and shame the devil. When your pastor calls you and says, I got to talk to you and you're no, and you know, you're about to be disciplined. Do you love it? Do you walk in and go, 
Praise God. I'm getting ready to get set free. Hallelujah. I've been longing for this. I've been waiting for this. Or does everything on the inside you say, oh, great. Here we go again. What did I do this time? But whoever hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Dang, God be calling people stupid. Proverbs 13, 18, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame. The rejection of discipline is a manifestation of the spirit of poverty. Oh, did you? <laughs> Proverbs 13, 18, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame. The rejection of discipline is the manifestation of the spirit of poverty. It's the way in which the devil leads you to ruin by putting something on the inside of you that spurns discipline, that hates correction. Proverbs 15.10 Stern discipline awaits anyone who leaves the path. The one who hates correction will die. Okay, now... I want you to remember that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes and amen. Right? Now listen to these promises. Whoever leaves the path of correction will die. God says, I promised you. You ignore correction, it will lead you to poverty and shame. That's a promise. And those promises are yes and amen. And if you hate correction, you're stupid. Here's another promise. Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, you will be counted among the wise. You will be counted among the wise. Do you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is an internal locus of control. Wisdom is internal, not external. It's in you. It's something in you that says, I not only know what to do, but I want to do it. I not only know what's right and do it because it's expected of me, but wisdom is deeper than that. Wisdom says, no, 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 no. This is a part of my value system now, and I embrace it, and it's a part of me. And I do this because it's wisdom, not just because it's right. If you're still doing what's right, but you're doing, doing it begrudgingly. I know I'm supposed to forgive, but fine. Then you don't have any wisdom. All right, there's one more. And here's my favorite. Don't worry, you're going to love this one. Hebrews 12, 4. I mean 12, 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Are you going through a hardship? Just pretend it's discipline. 
You ever go through a hardship and you say, hey, is this God? Is this the devil? Is this, is this me? Is it my fault? Is it God's fault? Is it the devil's fault? I am so confused about what this is. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, let me just solve it for you. Just pretend it's all discipline. God is treating you as sons. God is allowing you to walk through this for some reason. He's shaping something in your character. He's disciplining you. Why? Because what discipline does, if you allow yourself to be trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, which is internal rightness with God. It shapes your character. And it's the way God treats you as a son. And the goal of the development of your character is integrity. You know what integrity is? Integrity is oneness of self. It's wholeness. Now, most of us are not one. We're two or we're three. Because you've got a thinking self, a speaking self, and an acting self, and they move in three different directions. You speak one way, you act another way, and you think a completely different way, and you're completely divided. And I don't know who to believe. You know, Rocky Balboa, when he's fighting, you know, and he goes, I see three of them. <laughs> and his trainer goes, hit the one in the middle. <laughs> Which one are you? Are you the one who says that you're a timely person? You know, <laughs> I love it when people talk like they're, they're, they're prompt. Oh, I hate being late. I always make it a point to be on time. Typically, if somebody's saying that, they're probably the one who's always late. You talk like a prompt person, but you act like a late person. And you probably think like a prompt person. Or in your mind, you probably justify your lateness with a thousand different excuses. Your thinking is moving in one direction. Your speaking is moving in another direction. Your actions are moving in a different direction. So now watch this. You're in the ministry now and you're caring for someone. But in your mind, you're thinking, what is wrong with you? Why don't you just get it together? But your mouth is saying, yes, and the Lord loves you and he cares. And, and your mouth is saying one thing, but your mind is thinking. And so it's not what you're saying is not flowing out of your nature. You have to suppress your nature in order to minister to that person. And it's a spirit of religion because you're only saying it because you think it's what's expected of you and what you should say. No integrity. Now, when you're talking about integrity, you're talking about wholeness. When you speak of a, a ship or a vessel, when they say that a ship or a vessel has integrity, it means it has it means that nothing outside of it can come inside of it if it doesn't want it to. There's no holes in the vessel. When there's holes in the vessel, the vessel has no integrity. It means that waters can rush into the ship anytime they want. And when wa if wa any water can rush into the ship, that ship can be sunk. When you have integrity, it means nothing can come into your heart that you don't want to. It means you can't make me angry. Anger, anger is outside of me, and it doesn't have to come inside of me if I don't want it to. It means you can't make me mad. You say, well, he made me mad. Did he put a gun to your head and say, get mad? What do you mean made you? No, you allowed yourself to become angry. 
you lost your temper because you had no control because you lacked integrity. There were holes in your vessel and the devil was able to rush in through those holes in your vessel. James talked about it in James chapter 1. He said, count it pure joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, lacking nothing. And then he goes on to say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men freely and does not find fault, but let him ask in faith. And faith is a quality of oneness that flows out of integrity. Let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave tossed by the wind. He's a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Don't let that man think he's going to get anything from God. Do you know that doubters have great faith? There are people that have great faith, but they're the biggest doubters you know. Why? Because you're blown by every wind. A wind of faith blows you this way and you're encouraged and you believe. And a wind of adversity blows the other way and you're discouraged and you doubt. Double-minded. Which are you? Are you a doubter or are you a believer? I don't know because I'm two people. I'm not whole. I haven't become one yet. There's still holes in my vessel through which doubt and unbelief come in. There's still holes in my vessel through which discouragement and depression come in. And I still haven't decided whether I'm encouraged or discouraged. I still haven't decided where I have clarity or I'm confused. I still haven't decided whether I'm at peace or or at chaos. I still haven't decided yet. And the winds are blowing me this way and that way and this way and that way and this way and that way. And what I'm longing for is integrity. But integrity only comes through the development of your character. But the development of your character only comes through trial and tribulation. And so God says, I'm going to let you walk through that trial. I'm going to let you walk through that tribulation. Why? So that patience may have its perfect work so that you may be perfect, lacking nothing. Now, that word, per, that word patience that he uses there is the term hupomone. It's a compound Greek term. Hupo means under. And mone comes from mene, which means to remain. Patience is the ability to remain under. Count it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces the ability to remain under. But let remaining under have its perfect work so that you may be perfect. God says, I'm going to hold you under this trial until you're perfect. I'm not letting you up until it's done its work. And I'm making sure that this trial works for you. It's working for your good, but I'm using it to shape your character. I'm using it to shape your character so that you have integrity, so that when you emerge, your faith will be purer than gold that is refined by fire. Peter said it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, uh, he was talking about this, this glorious inheritance that you've received. It's an inheritance. You've been born again into an inheritance that can neither perish, spoil, or fade, reserved in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you might have had to suffer grief in various kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold that perishes, though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. 
God is proving your faith real, proving it genuine. And for many of us here, our faith has not yet been proved genuine. God says, I don't know if it's counterfeit or if it's real. Why? Because you keep going back and forth from faith to unbelief, to faith to unbelief, to encouragement to discouragement, to encouragement to discouragement, to, from clarity to confusion, from clarity to confusion. And God says, I'm going to hold you under longer. But when I'm done, your faith is going to emerge as pure as gold, refined in the fire, and it's going to be proved genuine. And it's going to result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, what God is really concerned about is the quality of our hearts. We're in the information age where all we want is the how-to. You know, I just did a preaching class recently. And one word of advice I gave to the preachers is, don't preach stuff until it lives in you. Because there's no integrity in preaching something that somebody else lived. Now, if I give you the steps to putting together a great sermon, you might take those steps and follow them and come up with a great sermon. But you know what? You don't even have to be saved to follow those steps. I could give you a prescription for preaching a great sermon and there's nothing prophetic about it because there's nothing lived about it. And if there's one thing that marked the lives of the prophets is that their very lives, not just their words, but their very lives were a testimony of the message that God gave them to proclaim. God pulls the prophet Amos out of, as he was a sheep herder in the hill country of Tekoa. He was a shepherd and God pulled him away. And what was the word he put in his mouth? The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. He, he took the shepherd and put the voice of the lion in his mouth. And it was a symbol that God was saying, I'm the shepherd of Israel. But because you have provoked me to anger, I've become a lion to roar against it. His very life was the illustration for the message that he proclaimed. And so God allows you to walk through trial and tribulation to shape your character and to give you integrity. And at the end of it, when you have integrity, what happens is that that which has become natural to God, that which is natural to God, becomes natural to you. All of a sudden, you love people not because you have to. Not because you're trying to, but because it's just who you are. And you minister to people not because you're supposed to, but just because it's natural. It's who you are. All right, there's more to it. There's your character. And the development of your character produces integrity. But there's also your gifts. Now, we can talk about the difference between natural and spiritual gifts. In actuality, they're all spiritual gifts. Why? Because they all come from God. Even your natural gifts came from God. They're not, they're not really natural, meaning you didn't develop them on your own. You didn't, you didn't come up with them by yourself. They came from God. The difference is what we call the natural gifts are actually creational gifts. And the supernatural gifts or the spiritual gifts are actually new creational gifts. 
The natural gifts point us back to the creation of humankind when God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And that was the gift of the Holy Spirit, by the way. The word in the Greek is spirit. He breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life. Why? Because in redemption, everything that was lost in the fall is restored. And if the gift of the Holy Spirit is a part of redemption, then it must have been in the, before the fall. Yes. Adam was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's what made him alive. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The moment, his first moment of consciousness was a moment of spiritfulness. To be human meant to be full of the Holy Spirit. You don't know what it is to be human until you get filled with the Holy Spirit. And isn't that what Paul meant when he said your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You were created to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God designed your physical body for the experience of spiritfulness. But in the creational gift of the Spirit, along with it came a whole bunch of creational gifts. Like administration and music and art, art and artisticness and, 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 and uh, comedy. And there's all of these. We can name hundreds of creational gifts of the Spirit. You say, this is my natural gift. It's my creational gift. And that's why we can see people all over the world who don't even know Jesus, they're moving in their creational gifts. It's still gifts of the Spirit. People who don't even believe in the Holy Spirit, they're moving in His gifts. But apart from faith in Christ, those gifts are cut off from their source. And so there's always something missing in the, ex, in the, in the process, in the, in the activity of them, in the execution of them. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we receive the new creational gift of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden the new creational gifts come. Gifts that point to the new creation of all things. They point to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, Therefore you lack no spiritual gift while you wait for the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. Those spiritual gifts are there to occupy your time until the Lord Jesus Christ descends from heaven with a shout. And it means that each time those gifts are made manifest... It's as if Christ just came. And it's a prelude to the coming of Christ. You know, when you watch the pre preview, you haven't seen the movie yet, but you've seen the preview. The gifts of the Spirit are the preview. The movie is when Jesus comes from heaven. And so there are your gifts, but then there are your passions. You're passionate about certain things that you're not gifted in. And you're gifted in certain things that you're not passionate about. But when we're talking about discovering your mission, if at the end of the day you want to arrive at your mission, you better be gifted in it and passionate about it. Because you misunderstand your gift if you think it's just something that you enjoy doing. Remember we said it's not a gift until it's given. The, the, who, who was it that said, one of the Proverbs says, if you bless your neighbor early in the morning, it'll be taken as a curse. You stand outside, Pastor, I want all of you to go to Pastor Christian's house, Pastor Christian and Aaron, 
and just stand outside and ring the doorbell at 3 o'clock in the morning. We just came to bless you. The whole church. Bless you! Because, you know, it rings inside their room and inside their, their apartment. You know, ding, and then your face comes up on the screen. Who is it? Bless you! You bless your neighbor early in the morning, it'll be taken as a curse. Remember I told you, there was a person in my congregation who came to me and said, I, I want to sing solos at church. And I said, I'd be happy to have you sing solos as long as you sing so low that nobody can hear you. Because when you sing, it's a gift, but only to you. That is, if I put you up to sing, I would be doing you a favor, but I'd be cursing the rest of the congregation. Because your singing is a distraction and a hindrance to the Spirit of God, and it does not bless the body of Christ. Now, I didn't say all that. I thought all that. Because, see, my nature is still being shaped. But what I did say was this. I said, brother, you have a wonderful ministry. But you'll never discover it as long as you think it's singing. The idea that you can sing is a distraction from the enemy to keep you from your real ministry. So stop fooling with this distraction. If folks have to stop worshiping to look up and see who that is. <laughs> In my, what the? It's him. You got things you're passionate about. I'm passionate about golf. Well, at least I was before my baby was born, but she, she destroyed all of that. <laughs> I used to play every week without fail, once a week, 18 holes, read magazines. See, the problem was God forgot to give me a gift. So I, because I was passionate about it, I never stopped to think I could be a professional golfer. And then added to your gifts and your passions is your sense of destiny. There are things that you have a gift for, things that you have a passion for, but there's nothing in you that senses any destiny over it. There are things that you have a gift for that you don't yet have a passion for, but yet there's some kind of sense of destiny over that thing. And so you're praying for God to spark a passion. There are things that you have no gift for, but you have a passion for, and you have a misguided sense of destiny for it. Until you have all three, you haven't discovered your calling yet. Wow. 
you can do a personal assessment at home. Say, what is your calling? Well, I feel called to do this. Am I gifted in that? Nope. Okay, cross that off your list. If you've got a gift for it, a passion for it, but no sense of destiny, wait. Keep praying. Keep walking. I went through this struggle when I was growing up because I had this whole pool of gifts. And I had this whole pool of passions. And I had even a pool of, of this sense of destiny. I had all kinds of sense of destiny over so many things. When I was in the fourth grade, I started playing the trumpet. Yeah. And I was really good. I mean, I had a gift for it. I mean, I really picked it up like lightning quick. And, and my teachers, they were just amazed at the, the progress I was making. By the time I was in the sixth grade, I had been playing just over two years. I entered into a high school music competition and won first place. And so my teacher, he was a professional, and he was saying, you have the potential to become the greatest trumpet player in the world if you want to. I mean, the kind of potential you have, if you poured yourself into this, you could be a world-renowned and in any genre you want. I just never had any sense of destiny. I was passionate about it. I loved it. I still have my trumpet. Well, one of them, I sold the other one, but... Uh, um, but the older I grew, the more I began to sense there's no destiny over this for me. So what if I have a gift? The world is constantly talking about potential. You've got to fulfill your potential. The fact of the matter is you can't fulfill your potential. You've got too much of it. If you set out with the goal of trying to fulfill your potential, you will be pulled in a thousand different directions at the same time. Even the least talented person in this room has more potential than you could ever fulfill. Jesus did not fulfill his potential. So much of what we talk about, about purpose, is discovering your potential and fulfilling it. Don't die with the music still inside you. Jesus only ministered for three years. He never wrote a book. He never planted a church. Think of what his potential was. Had he planted a church, it would have been the largest church the world has ever seen. Had he written a book, it would have been the bestseller by far. It would have outsold the Bible. Let's see, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Jesus. I'm going to read the book of Jesus. Had it been you or I on the cross, we would have been saying, no, Father, not yet. I got too much potential. Too many things I haven't accomplished yet. I got too much to do. Don't you see all of the gifts that I have? There's more I can achieve. I haven't made my family proud enough yet. 
But he didn't come to fulfill his potential. He came to do the will of him who sent him. And there are all kind of things that are a part of your capacity, a part of your potential that you should just drop and forget. And stop wasting your time because it has nothing to do with the Father's purpose for your life. Can you imagine? You know, they kept trying to push Jesus in directions that he knew the Father hadn't called him to to go in. You're the Messiah? Oh, we're about to start a rebellion up in this piece. We're raising up an army. Even as disciples, we're going to sit on 12 thrones all around you. Can you imagine if he did raise up an army? Now, that would have been tight. Shoot, the movie The 300 would have been nothing. Because when the commander of your army can raise the dead. You got your arm chopped off? Put that back on. Get out there. You're cool. Everybody got killed? Get up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. up. Come forth. Come forth. Come forth. Get back out there. Lord, we're out in this war. We ran out of food. Give me that cracker. Give me that fish. Multiply. Whoosh. Everybody eat. Whoop. There it is. We won the war. We got to celebrate. You got some water. Whoop. There it is. Turn it to wine. Keep the party moving. I wish I would. I could have been at that wedding at Cana of Galilee. Jesus would be like, I normally don't do this at parties, but keep the party moving. (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is there's really no end to his potential. How many miracles could he have worked? And there's really no end to your potential. There's not a single, you say, well, you know, like you hear a lot of people say, well, you know, you go to a graveyard. Most of those people never showed up because they never fulfilled their potential. No, 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 no. There's never been anyone who fulfilled their potential. Ever. Everyone died before they fulfilled their potential. Some of the greatest theologians who wrote all these tomes and all these textbooks, they always died before their last book was finished. And when they died, they always had three or four more books they were planning to write but never got a chance to write. They didn't fulfill their potential. There's a lot of music still on the inside of them when they died. When you stand before the Father, He's not going to ask you if you fulfilled your potential or not. It's a stupid question. Only He knows your potential. The only thing he's going to ask you is, did you do my will? And so as I was growing, I I realized trumpet just wasn't it. The next thing I discovered was I had a voice. I could sing. Ninth grade. My music instructor enrolled me in a, in a singing competition. There were 800 kids there, and I won first place. Oh, 
And I went back in 10th grade and won first place. And they started throwing money at me and tours and, and singing opportunities around the world. And, and, and every time I'd pray about one of them, the Lord would say, nope. And I went back my junior year and won first place. And they threw all kind of money at me and they offered me this and offered me that. And every time I prayed about it, the Lord would say, nope, that's not for you. But Lord, it's part of my potential, but it ain't part of my plan. And I went back my senior year and I won first place. I was famous in this, in this whole thing. I would walk in the room and they would just go crazy. But the Lord was saying, that's not what I've called you to do. I'm thinking, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I could be a famous singer. I could be a famous musician. I could be the next Michael Jackson. <laughs> Started wearing a white glove to the competition. <laughs> I enrolled in college as a music major, but I went to a Bible college. So I had embraced my calling to serve the Lord. I knew it was that, but I thought I would serve him through my primary gift, which I thought was music. And I was overtaken in that year by the discovery of the evangelistic gift. I started evangelizing, going out in the street, preaching the gospel. Praying for the sick, seeing people rise up and walk on the street and get healed. Going to public squares and in, in, in colleges and stuff and preaching out in the square. Going in the prisons and preaching and seeing people get saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, I, and you know, we were just, we're praying five, six, seven hours a day. Not doing my homework. Because I hadn't discovered that gift yet. So I said, that's it, I'm an evangelist. And then my second year of college, I got an opportunity to become a youth pastor at a Korean church. And I discovered my pastoral gift, which royally confused me because I thought I'm called to be an evangelist. So I'm an evangelist, singer, pastor, trumpet player. Somewhere in there, I discovered I had an academic gift. Now I'm royally messed up. I always wished I had like a money gift or a business gift. The Lord forgot to give me that one. <laughs> All the time I'm searching for an answer. God, would you just clarify because I'm royally confused about what I'm supposed to do because I start moving in the evangelistic direction and all these evangelistic doors open and I start moving in the pastoral direction and all these pastoral doors open and I start moving in the musical direction and all these musical doors open and I move in the academic direction and all these academic doors open and I feel like I'm a horse that's being quartered If you're going to pursue God's calling on your life, you're going to feel pulled in many directions. That tension. That struggle. Why? Because you're discovering the parameters of your nature through the shaping of your character. He uses it all to shape your character. I remember uh, I was a youth pastor after a couple of years of being a youth pastor. In the summers, I would always travel and do youth retreats and revivals and, 
and that stuff. So the summers I'd be gone, but I'd always come home on the weekends and preach at my church. One particular week I had done, a, 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 I had preached at my church Friday and Sunday, Sunday to the youth. And then Sunday night I left and I preached Sunday night, Monday morning. You know, these Korean retreats, they try to kill you. They try to preach you to death. Now, I did a five-day-long Korean youth retreat. I preached Sunday night, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, and Monday night, three times a day. I got home Friday afternoon. I preached at my church Friday night. No, no, I was gone Friday and Saturday. I drove home early Sunday morning, and I cried all the way home. And I got home. I sat at the table with my mom. I'm, sh- I'm showering, shaving, getting ready to go to my church to preach to my kids again. And I sat down at the table with my mom, and I started crying. I'm out the will of God. He says, what are you talking about? God called me to be an evangelist, and I'm trying to be a pastor, and that's why I'm having such a difficult time. She said, Benjamin, this morning the Lord woke me up at 6 a.m., and the Lord said, pray for Benjamin. She said, as I began praying for you, I saw a vision of you. You were in a field, and you were plowing. And you were plowing a perfectly straight line. She said, and then all of a sudden I was taken back in the vision, and I saw that you had plowed hundreds of perfectly straight lines and you were plowing another perfectly straight line and the Lord said to tell you that you're in the center of his purpose for your life. I said, but mom, I don't understand. I thought I'm called to be an evangelist. And she said, you you are. I said, but then why am I being a pastor? She said, because you're also called to be a pastor. I said, but how is that going to work? And my mom said, I don't know, but the Lord will show you. The Lord will lead you in two different directions at the same time, but in his eyes, you're still going straight. When you feel like you're being pulled apart, the Lord sees you coming together. When you feel like you're being torn down, the Lord sees you being built up. And I thought, Lord, I'm coming apart. And he says, no, 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 it's just coming together. Lord, I'm at the end of my rope. Yes, but now you're at the beginning of mine. Lord, I can't take it anymore. Good, well, let me take it. And then I discovered the the prophetic. I said, thank God I'm not a teacher. Then I discovered the teacher. And then I discovered the apostolic. And the apostolic was what put them all together. And all of a sudden, I'm one again. Ah. At the end of the day, it makes sense, but I had to go on the journey. The Lord won't let it happen quickly. I wish I could just get to where I'm going. I remember I prayed one day. I said, Lord, when you're ready to do this thing in my life, let me know. Until then, just leave me alone, will you? Can you just wake me up when you're ready to do it? Because I'm sick and tired of the struggle. No, no, no. You need the struggle, son. You need the struggle because a butterfly has to struggle its way out of the cocoon if its wings are going to open up. If you cut that cocoon open too early, you kill that butterfly. His wings will never open. And there's times and seasons in which God allows you to struggle and he watches you struggle. You say, God, why aren't you stepping in? Because I'm not just concerned about your success. I'm concerned about your character. 
I'm not just concerned about what you do, but at the end of the day, what are you and who are you and whose are you? At the end of the day, I don't want to just say I'm proud of what you accomplished. I want to say I'm proud of what's in your heart. Because I'm not just looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking primarily at the heart. There are places and situations in your life where you don't think you have a gift for it. And you definitely don't have a passion for it. And because of that, you got no sense of destiny for it. Moses didn't. Lord, I don't talk so good. No gift. Send somebody else because I ain't got no passion. And I definitely don't have any sense of destiny for it. But God says, no, 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 no. Who gave man his mouth? There's stuff in your mouth that you don't even know is there. There's stuff in your heart that you don't even know is there. There's stuff I deposited along the way that you didn't even know was there. And I've been preparing you for this day when you didn't know you were being prepared. And yes, we do our best to discern our gifts and our passions and our sense of destiny. But at the end of the day, we're waiting for that moment of revelation when God calls us to the burning bush and says, You didn't know it, but I've been walking with you all these years. And I called you and set you apart in your mother's womb. When you didn't know what I was doing, I knew it all along. You don't feel prepared, but I've prepared you. You don't feel called, but I've called you. You don't feel equipped, but I've equipped you. You don't feel empowered, but I have empowered you. And the word of the Lord to you tonight is that there are many of you in this room and you feel like a dull knife. You feel like you are so powerless that you are harmless to the kingdom of Satan. You, you feel like if God were to use you to attack the kingdom of Satan, it'd be like taking a butter knife or a plastic knife and trying to stab Satan with it. But God says, no, I have stockpiled weapons of mass destruction in this house. He has enriched the uranium of the spirit in you and he's prepared you and stockpiled you as weapons of mass destruction against the kingdom of Satan in these last days. But the Lord says you are not only weapons of mass destruction, but you are instruments of mass redemption. You have been stockpiled in this house. He is piling you up and he's preparing you and he's, he's storing you up for a coming day of revelation. Say, God, what do you want me to do? This is what I want you to do. I want you to wait. Because there comes a time in a season when, like Moses, he puts you on the backside of a desert and says, I just want you to follow these sheep around this mountain for 40 years. That's all I want you to do. But in the meantime, I'll put you in a family. Moses was in the wilderness being prepared for 40 years, but God did not leave him out there in the wilderness by himself. He put him in a family and he gave him a task. You're going to relate to this man as father. You're going to relate to these individuals as brothers and sisters. And you're going to relate to this woman as your wife. And these are your children. Moses, you're going to learn how to function in a family. Because if you don't learn how to function in a family, when I set you over my house, you're not going to know the first thing about what to do. 
And secondly, here's your task. You're going to lead these sheep. But Lord, I'm not passionate about sheep. I don't care if you're passionate about sheep. That's your task. But Lord, my gift is leadership. My gift is this. My gift is that. My gift. I didn't ask you what your gifts are. I said you're going to follow these sheep around. Why? Because at the end of the day, you're going to shepherd my people Israel. But if you don't know how to find water for these sheep, you're not going to know how to find water for my people. And guess what? Moses was leading that flock of sheep around the same wilderness that he had to lead God's people through for 40 years. But he had already spent 40 years in it. And when he spent 40 years there with God's people, he already knew where the water was. And he knew where the green pastures were. And he knew where the shade was. And he knew where the refuge was he knew his way around that desert because God prepared him for 40 years in the wilderness and many of you here you're in the wilderness period of your life you say God I feel like you've left me in a barren wilderness God says no you better get out your map and chart the terrain in the place where I've called you to stand you're not wandering aimlessly I am leading you through the wilderness and preparing you to shepherd my people But there's a coming day of revelation. There's a coming day of revelation. Make no mistake. Moses did not approach God at the burning bush. God approached Moses. At the end of the day, you're not in pursuit of God. God's in pursuit of you. At the end of the day, you're not waiting on the Lord. The Lord's waiting on you. At the end of the day, you're not studying his word. His word is studying you. Why? Because the word of God is sharp and mighty and quicker than any two-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. As you're studying God's word and seeking to discern what the spirit is saying, God's word is studying you and discerning the thoughts and intents of your heart. And God is looking at your heart and saying, still a little ways to go. Still a little ways to go. But I'm, I'm getting you there. I'm leading you there because I'm your shepherd. Keep moving. Keep moving. I know you're walking through a barren desert, but keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep walking. Keep leading those sheep. Plug into that family. What believers tend to do is when they're going through the wilderness period, the desert period, they separate from family. I don't need a family. It's just me and God out here in the wilderness by myself. And God says, no, 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 Moses, you're not going to do that. Moses, first day in the wilderness, God gave him a family. A church home. And his father was priest of God Most High. He was priest of El Shaddai. Some of you are caught up in all kind of stuff because you're in the wilderness. And you feel abandoned by God. And whenever you feel abandoned by God, it's so easy to abandon him in our hearts. You've turned to things that have caused you shame. And like Adam and Eve, when you hear God walking in the cool of the day in the garden, you hide behind a bush. But when God approached Moses, what did he, what did he engulf? A bush. And the bush represents your hiding place. The bush is burning. God says, I'm even in your hiding place. I've come to come to consume that thing that you're hiding behind. I've come to consume that place of your fear. I've come to consume it. Adam, you want to hide behind the bush? Good. I'll come and fill the bush. I'll come. 
But when God, listen to this, he's burning the bush but not consuming it. Why? Because his goal is not to expose you and humiliate you. His goal is to become your hiding place. Adam, you just stay right there behind that bush. I'm going to set that bush ablaze with my glory and with my power. And at the end of the day, you're going to stay right where you are and say, God, you are my hiding place. You are my hiding place. Moses thought he was approaching a sight that was strange. What he didn't realize was that in that strange sight, God was approaching him. And he takes one step too many and God says, that's close enough. Stop. It's too late for you to turn and run. You know what? When it's God's time for you to fulfill that calling and that mission and that destiny that he's laid out for you, when it's your time to fulfill it, there will be nowhere to run. You just drop all that anxiety and fear about, well, what if I miss it? Or what if I go the wrong way? Or what if I make a wrong turn? Listen, he's your father. He's not going to make you. He's not going to let you make a wrong turn. He's not going to let you miss it. Even if you mess it up, you won't miss it. We have this theology of God that is an affront to his character. He said, well, I know why I'm in such a messed up situation because 16 years ago, God told me to turn right and I turned left and it just screwed up my life. And God said, forget you for the rest of your life because you missed this one thing I told you to do 16 years ago. There's a sense in which God changes his mind. He never changes his purpose. But he does change his plan. If you were teaching your child to drive and you said, get on the freeway, and your child gets on the freeway, and your intention is to get off the exit 20 miles away, but he messes up and gets off 10 miles away. You say, that's it. Get out of the car. You're done. You'll never drive again. <laughs> or do you say, that's okay. Hang a right and then hang a left up there. We're going to go a different route, but we're going to the same destination. God knows a thousand different routes to get you to the same destination. It's the GPS of the spirit. He's recalculating. I know you messed up. I know you made a wrong turn, but we're recalculating. I'm, I haven't changed my mind about where we're going. I've just changed my mind about the route. Even when, Mo, even when the people of Israel messed up in the wilderness, God didn't change his mind about taking them into the promised land. He just said, it's going to take us a little longer to get there, but we're still going there. He's not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he should change his mind. You see, you and I, we don't bring children in the world so that they can fulfill our every command. We don't sit down before they are born and mark out every moment of their life and put together a to-do list. Mark out every day and say, this is what you're going to do today. 8.05, wash your face. 8.06, brush your teeth. Yep, you're out of my will. It's 807. That's it. Done. Everything I was going to bless you with today, it's. But yet we project that on God. David's only line of consciousness was the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he's with me. For many of you here, the Spirit of God is recalculating because you've made some wrong turns. But he's recalculating to get you back on track. And if you don't get there, it won't, be, it won't be because the Spirit of the Lord threw you out. It'll be because you just said, oh, well, forget it. I've messed it up. Moses, take off your shoes. Because the ground upon which you stand is holy. That word holy in its basic definition, means different. When the angels in Isaiah 6 were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, they were saying different, different, different. He's different from everything else in all creation. It means there's nothing like him. It means he can't be put in a category with anything else. Moses, take off your shoes. The ground upon which you stand is different. You're in a different place now. You were in a wandering place, but now that you've stepped into this soil, you're in a place of clarity. You were in a season of preparation, but now that your feet are in this soil, you're in a season of fulfillment. And I want you to take off your shoes and get your feet into this soil because I don't want there to be anything between you and this soil. I want you to experience it, Moses. You've got to sink your feet into this soil. No protection. I want you to remove that which would protect your skin from my holiness. Because if you sink your feet into this, Moses, not only will you experience the fact that the ground is holy, but it'll make you holy. Moses walked away from that burning bush, a different Moses. And you are going to walk away from the grounds of this conference center, a different you. For some of you here, the process is complete. He's been preparing you long before you knew it. And you thought he had left you in a place of confusion. The thing for you to remember is that when you're confused, God is never confused. Did you know God never freaks out? He's never sitting on the throne going, oh my God, what am I going to do? Oh. Jesus comes in, Father, what are you worried about? Do you see Gloria? What am I going to do for her? I've exhausted all my resources. What am I going to do now? Whenever I'm tempted to feel discouraged, I stop and say, wait a minute, God, you're not discouraged. And whenever I'm tempted to feel frustrated, I stop and say, okay, hold on, Lord. You're not frustrated about this. And I'm your son. 
and your seed remains in me, and I participate in your nature. So it means that what's natural to you is also natural to me. God is preparing you for something that goes beyond your wildest imaginations. But there's a coming moment of revelation and it goes beyond any manifestation. In that moment of revelation when he calls you before the bush, suddenly he clarifies everything that you've suffered to that point. Moses, this is why you were spared the only boy in your generation. Can you imagine to be a five-year-old Israelite boy and to be the only five-year-old Israelite boy? This is why you felt so different growing up in Pharaoh's household as the only Israelite boy there. You didn't fit in with the Israelites because you were the only survivor of an entire generation and you didn't fit in with the Egyptians because you were the only non-Egyptian there. And you were too Egyptian to be Israelite and too Israelite to be Egyptian. And this is why I allowed you to grow up in that isolated place. And this is why it didn't work when you tried to redeem them in your own power. This is why I didn't back you up. And this is why I left you out in this desert for 40 years. This place where you feel so rejected and abandoned by me. This moment. I have heard the groaning of my people. This thing is bigger than you, Moses. I put you through all of this. Because I have heard the groaning of my people. And Moses, you got to stop your own groaning because this is bigger than your groaning. I have heard the groaning of my people in Egypt and I'm concerned about them. And I've come down to rescue them. And so go, stand before Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, let my people go. It's time. For others of you here tonight, the wilderness has just begun. You're going to leave this retreat changed, yes. But it doesn't mean you're going to leave the wilderness immediately. You've got some more years to follow those sheep around that mountain. Your moment of revelation has not yet come. God is not releasing you to your ministry among the nations yet. You're still in the stockpile. But I'm going to give you one key to maintaining your character, integrity, and faith in the wilderness. You got to do what Jesus did during those 40 days in the desert. And what he did for those 40 days in the desert was very clear. You know what he did? He meditated on Scripture. Because when Satan came to tempt him, he didn't say, oh, yeah, devil, well, I got a prophetic word yesterday that said this. 
Oh, yeah, devil. Well, the spirit of God came down and I got slain in the spirit two days ago. There was none of that happening during those 40 days. But you know what he had? He had the eternal and unchanging word of the living God. It is written. And there are some of you here that have more prophecies in your head than scriptures. And you're dangerous and ungrounded. You go home and write down every prophetic word you receive, but you ain't got no Bible verses written down anywhere. And there's no foundation in you. You're dangerous. God can't use you yet. When someone asks you what the Lord is saying to you, do you go immediately to some prophecy you received? Don't get me wrong. We need the prophecy too. It's beautiful. I love it. It's powerful. But it is structural and scripture is foundational. We are being built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. But you can't have the structure without the foundation. And so when Satan came to Jesus, he didn't say it was spoken last week at church. He said, it is written. God wants to ground you in his word. But more than anything else, God is calling you to surrender to his will and to his plan. And tonight as we close, God is calling us to the place of surrender. And if someone could just come, just start playing the keyboard just softly right now. And I just want you to prepare your hearts to surrender to God. Many of you, I know I, I, I talked about, I, I just gave Pastor Christian about 28 more sermons. But all of you located yourself somewhere in there. Maybe you're here tonight and you're struggling because you just know you got this gift and you're passionate about it, but nobody's affirming that sense of destiny over you. Many of you are here tonight and you, you, you feel stuck, you feel trapped because you got this gift and you got this passion and you got this sense of destiny, but nobody's giving you a chance to do it. Nobody's releasing you. You just feel so stuck. Others of you, you're here tonight and you just feel trapped because you don't, you say, I don't even know what my gifts are and I definitely am not sure about my passions and sense of destiny. I'm so far from that. I, I just don't locate myself anywhere on there. You're like Moses was in the wilderness. He had given up on all of it and just thought, I guess I'm just going to follow these sheep. I guess I just stick with the family and the task and that's all I got. You don't even see the burning bush coming. Others of you are you're somewhere in between. You, you got some gifts and you know one. You got some passions and you know one. And there's some sense of destiny that you're struggling with. You're somewhere in that continuum, but you're wrestling about is it this way or is it that way or is it this way or is it that way? And, and which should I do? And there's this burning question in your heart. God, what do you want me to do? 
wherever you are in any of those three categories in the continuum, there's one thing God wants you to do for all of you. He wants you to surrender. He wants you to surrender to him the idea that you can figure it out on your own. He wants you to surrender to him the idea that you can make it happen in your own power or that you're supposed to make it happen at all. All he needs is your surrender. He doesn't even need your understanding. All he needs is your surrender because with surrender comes obedience. All he needs is your surrender. And the one thing that will seal the change, the one thing that will seal the transformation, the one thing that will seal the revelation that you've received, God is going to send many of you to the ends of the earth. He's going to open the doors of nations before you. He's going to cause kings to become your foster fathers and queens to become your surrogate mothers. And they will come from the nations bearing your sons and daughters in their arms. And he will give you nations as an inheritance to you. But he wants you to surrender the idea that you can somehow make it happen. If you're faithful enough, if you're good enough, if you're obedient enough, if you're timely enough, if you're sacrificial enough, that you can somehow make it happen. Listen, my brothers, my sisters, you and I can't make it happen. I don't care how hard you try. You can't make it happen. I don't even care how obedient you are. You can't make it happen. And you don't even bear the responsibility to make it happen. The only thing he asks of you is surrender. Surrender. And as long as you're still wrestling, you're not surrendered yet. The clarity comes not from knowing exactly what you're going to do. The clarity comes from knowing that he's your father. And you're his child. That's all. My dad used to pick up me and my brothers from school and we'd get in the car and we were not allowed to ask questions. He would just drive right past the house. Dad, where are we going? No response. We were not allowed to ask where we're going. I remember one day my dad picked us up from school and he was driving and we went right past the house and I had my whole evening planned what I was going to do when we got home. And he drove past the house and I said, Dad, where are we going? And he didn't respond. And I almost said, you know what? Wherever you're going, just let me out of the car right here. I'll walk home. Because I had my evening planned out. But something inside me said, just trust the Father. He kept driving. Ten minutes later, I said, Dad, where are we going? No answer. Finally, I realized he's not going to tell us. So just sit and enjoy the ride. All of a sudden, we pull into the parking lot of the Oakland Coliseum. He flashes a VIP badge. We park in the VIP parking. We got tickets to see the Warriors play the Detroit Pistons, and we're sitting right in the front row on the floor. There's nobody in front of us but the cameras. And I got to watch Scottie Pippen versus Manute Bowl. And I thought to myself, I almost disqualified myself from this by jumping out of the car and fulfilling my desire for this evening. Because my desire is nothing compared to the Father's desire for me. And many of you here, you're in the car and you're wondering, where is the Father going? And you've been asking him, where are we going? And the Father is silent, not because he wants you to be confused. You don't have to be confused. You just have to stop worrying about it. 
I'm so confused about where I'm going. Well, it doesn't matter. You're not driving. Your life is not your own. You're reaching over and trying to grab the wheel and make the car go to where you think God wants you to take it. He's not expecting you to take it. He's expecting you to surrender. And you've got all these conditions in your heart. Well, Lord, just don't send me here. Lord, just please don't send me there. Lord, just don't make me one of these. Lord, I just don't want to do this. I just don't have any sense of passion for that. I don't have any desire for that. Do you, are you sure? And the Father is saying, will you just hush? And stop trying to figure it out and stop trying to work it out in yourself and recognize that when I take you there, wherever I take you, I will put within you the gifts and the passion and the sense of destiny to fulfill it. If you just trust me. If you just trust me and come back to that place that says my life is not my own. You can send me wherever. And I'll go. My life is not my own. It's about trusting the Father with your life. And when you come to that place of complete surrender to the Father, what you find is that in the midst of your mission, you've returned to your purpose. That even in the course of fulfilling all of this mission and all of this that the Father has laid out for me to do, all of a sudden I find myself back in his arms but he can only hold me if I surrender and I find that fulfilling my mission is just as easy as fulfilling my purpose to do both I just have to rest in the father's arms trust him to get me there father right now I silence the voice of confusion there has been a sustained attack of the spirit of confusion over many of the hearts of the sons and daughters of this house. But right now, I silence that voice of confusion and I release you into a place of clarity. In the name of Jesus, you will no longer be confused. Satan is the author of confusion. But the spirit of the Lord brings clarity. But it's a clarity of love, not a clarity of direction. It's a clarity of trust, not a clarity of detail. Because you've assumed that the only possible way for you to have clarity is if you know all the details. But the Father is saying to you tonight, you'll know none of the details, but you'll have complete clarity. Why? Because you're resting in my arms. Right now you're here tonight and you're struggling with confusion. I want you to just come stand at this altar right now. We're going to establish you in the spirit of clarity and in the spirit of love. Just lift your hands to the Lord right now.
And I want you to surrender. Surrender your right to know the details. Jesus is the one who said to his disciples, he said, where I go, you know, and the way you know. And it was Philip who said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and we definitely don't know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way. You know the way. You've been walking and confused and thinking, Lord, I need to know the way. I need to know where I'm going and I need to know the way. And Jesus is here tonight to say, I am the way. You know me. And if you know me, you know the way. You are not lost. Confusion is a lie of the devil. Confusion is an illusion. It's an illusion of the enemy that would make you think you're lost and wandering aimlessly, but you cannot be lost and wandering aimlessly unless the one who leads you is lost. And he is never lost. Lift up your hands before the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus. We embrace the spirit of clarity and I release the spirit of clarity on these sons and daughters of yours right now in the name of Jesus. Go ahead, just contend for it right now. Just lift your voices and contend for clarity.